Today's passage comes from Book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 9 to 17. Romans 8, 9 to 17. You can look above in the screen or in your bulletin or your devices. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings in order that we may also share in His glory. This is the Word of God. Hello, New Mercy. Oops, sorry. Um, My name is Lisa, for those who don't know. Um... I don't speak often. Um, This is my second time speaking, actually. Um, But last time I came up, I went on and on about how I love Virginia. I'm from Virginia. And um, March Madness is coming soon. And UVA is doing awesome in basketball. And so I decided to wear my orange and blue to celebrate (laughs) UVA, hopefully. But I realize it's also um, Syracuse colors, too. So so don't be confused. <laughs> but anyway, um, I'm glad to be here, especially um, I know it was hard for daylight savings. Um, losing that hour of sleep is so hard, I know. But um, just think to yourself, um, we get more sunlight now. It's going to get darker later. So it seems like the day's longer, right? Yay. Uh, anyway. <laughs> so today I'm here. I'm continuing on with the sermon series of identity, with our Lent sermon series, Rethinking You um, About Identity. Pastor Key talked last week about how um, we need to define our true identity in light of the right definition of Jesus and his work on the cross. One of the benefits he mentioned was that we can be called children of God. And that's what I wanted to focus on and flesh out today for us. So if you could pray with me, and we'll get started here, okay? Thank you so much, Lord, that um, you draw us here, and that um, you're interested in um, teaching us this morning. I pray for your spirit to give us um, teachable hearts, But I also pray, God, for um, your truth to set us free today. I pray that you would enlighten us to know the fullness of what you call us to be and um, how you you call each of us um, as children of God. Thank you so much, Lord. Um, We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Okay, I wanted to start today with, with a story of a little boy. His teachers said about him that he was basically too stupid to learn anything. Um, back in the day, they used weird vocabulary, so they called him adult. They labeled him as adult. Um, he, if he were to go to school nowadays, he would most likely have been labeled as ADHD because he just couldn't sit still. He always was asking questions. He just continually um, bothering people <laughs> in class. Um, it was learned later on that he ha- was actually dyslexic. Um, and so after only a couple months of failing at regular school, his mom decided to pull him out and just homeschool him. Um, as he grew older, he um, would eventually become completely deaf in his left ear and about 80% deaf in his right ear. Um, he also would be fired from his first two jobs he ever had because um, they labeled him as being too unproductive at work. Um, And then he later on would think to himself, be so convinced to himself, "I'm, I'm going to invent something. And he would end up failing about a thousand times in trying to invent something. Um, So, if the story had stopped there, um, what labels would this boy have carried? Maybe um, he would have been labeled as handicapped, um, learning disabled, maybe a failure. Um, All these labels he would have carried. But, thank goodness the story doesn't stop there, because, um, who am I talking about? I'm actually talking about Thomas Edison. He would eventually go on to invent the light bulb, and actually by the time he died at, um, later on, by 83 years old, he had 1,093 patents to his name. This was written about Thomas Edison in the book The Heroes of the Age. Thomas Edison was more responsible than anyone else for creating the modern world. No one did more to shape the physical cultural makeup of present day civilization. Accordingly, he was the most influential figure of the millennium. Wow, right? This is the same person. The first person who you could have labeled dyslexic, learning disabled, failure, to Someone who's, who is written up as the most influential figure of the millennium. As you can see, labels are really powerful. It influences us and in how we view ourselves and how we view other people. Um, and the most dangerous thing you can do to yourself is by defining your identity from these labels that are incorrect or wrong. For example, it could be as simple as, you know, oh, I got straight A's, so yes, yay, I'm smart. But what happens the first time you get a C or D or an F? Are you still smart or not, right? 
Or it could be something as serious as, say, you are in a very toxic relationship and the person you're with is very abusive, emotionally, physically, sexually abusive. And so you think to yourself, you label yourself, I am weak or I am a victim. And you live the rest of your life thinking that. And that is the label you put on yourself. But is that correct? No. That's not true. And so when you think of labels or identity, think to yourself, who am I? Where do I get my identity? This sermon series of rethinking you, how do I define myself, right? A perfect example of this, I talked about this with my FG um, last week, but perfect example of labeling yourself incorrectly and really devastating you is actually, um, I don't know if you guys know, she's pretty famous, but the UFC fighter Ronda Rousey. My husband is really into UFC. (laughs) But um, UFC fighter Ronda Rousey, she was like the top of her game. She was awesome. Anyone who went against her, they pretty much lost in the first round, like within 30 seconds or less. Um, She just like dominated the sport. But... All of a sudden, someone named Holly Holmes came along, the preacher's daughter, and she beat her. And it was so shocking. Everyone was so so shocked. Um, Later on, Ronda Rousey did an interview with Ellen DeGeneres on her show. And Ronda Rousey admitted to contemplating suicide. And Ellen was so shocked, I'm sure everyone was so shocked. um, Because basically, Ronda Rousey said, I was a champion, and once I wasn't that anymore, I didn't know who I was. I couldn't handle the fact that I wasn't the winner anymore, and it devastated her. And how sad is that when we define ourselves simply by things that we can do or cannot do, right? That is incorrect, and that is a lie. So in light of this, let's look at the passage for today in Romans 8. Um, just as a background, Romans 8, Romans, the book of Romans was written by the Apostle Paul. He wrote Romans as basically a logical, systematic treatment of the gospel. Um, he had never been to Rome, but he wanted to go. Um, other books of the Bible, for example, like Ephesians, Philippians, he had actually gone there, so he was giving them practical advice or encouragements to specific people. But in, for Rome, he had never been to the church in Rome. And so he wanted to basically just give them a solid foundation of the gospel, and so he wrote them this letter. Um, the chapter that we're studying today, actually chapter 8, People, um, commentators would say it's actually the climax of Paul's explanation of the gospel. So the theme of even chapter 8 is basically to help every believer understand that there is a way to have absolute certainty of your salvation. And there is a way to walk in victory through Jesus Christ, right? He does this by explaining three things, and those are the three things I'm going to go over today. So, um, number one, that once we believe 
in Jesus' saving work on the cross that our position is forever changed, that legally and positionally we are now saved. The second thing he goes over is that with faith in Jesus, as a surety of that, as evidence of that, he gives the Holy Spirit to come and live in us. And the third thing is, now that the Holy Spirit is living in us, that Holy Spirit is what helps us to cry out, Abba, Father, and gives us the right to become children of God. So let's focus on the first part. So first thing is our position in Christ. That we now, if you believe that Jesus died for your sins on the cross and that he paid for everything, that we can now live a victorious Christian life. Because why? Because positionally, we are now saved. Um, Paul says, I know we didn't read these verses, but Paul says in the beginning of chapter 8, I'm going to read it for you, verses 1 and 2, chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Jesus Christ, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Paul is reminding um, Christians that now you believe in Jesus Christ dying for your sins on the cross you are positionally in a different place he's saying you therefore have no condemnation if you see in the rest of the chapter of 8 Paul categorizes only two people you're either living in the flesh or living in the spirit There's no third category for people, for example, who are baby Christians who are struggling or maybe really good people but not Christians. No. There's only two categories. You are saved or you are not. You believe in Jesus that he died for your sins or you don't. Those are the only two categories that Paul says exists. There is no third category. So for him, he's saying, positionally, once you believe in the cross, you are saved and there's no more condemnation. A good example of this is, um, for you lawyers out there, the concept of double jeopardy. Um, My sister's a lawyer, I'm not a lawyer, but um, I'll just try to explain that quickly. Most of you probably know. But basically, for double jeopardy, You cannot be tried for the same crime twice. So if, for example, new evidence comes up or a witness is all of a sudden comes saying, oh, um, you're guilty now, um, it's inadmissible. It's over. Once the trial is set and the verdict comes and you're proclaimed innocent, that's it. No matter what happens. So, for example, I don't know if you guys saw in the news, um, O.J. Simpson, supposedly, his, the murder weapon was found. Dun, dun, dun. And um, in the news, they were saying some security guard had it the whole time, and he thought it was just like a movie prop, and so he kept it. But I don't know, um, I don't know basically the outcome of the rest, but 
does it matter? Because no, he cannot be retried for the same crime of killing his wife. He was found innocent. And therefore, no matter what arises, he will forever be innocent for that crime. I'm not saying we're like O.J. Simpson. <laughs> what I'm saying is that Jesus Christ on the cross died for our sins, past, present, and future. If you believe that Jesus died for your sins, you cannot, God says, therefore, there is no condemnation for you ever again. So what does that mean? What kind of label does that give us if we understand that fully? That therefore now we have no condemnation. It's a powerful thing. The second point is, when we believe in Jesus Christ and we are now positionally under no condemnation, God says as evidence of that, he gives you the Holy Spirit to come live in you. We can stand before God with 100% security. And not only that, Paul says, he has shown us the way to live a victorious Christian life. Verse 9 of what we read today says, You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And in verse 11, it says, And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who lives in you. Paul keeps reminding believers that we don't have to label ourselves as people who are controlled by our sinful nature. You cannot say to yourself now, once you become a Christian, I'm hopeless. I'm never going to change. You can't say that. Because God says the Holy Spirit lives in you. Let's just say, for example, there's a person who's kind of just living paycheck by paycheck. Um, you know, they have a lot of debt. They're just trying to get by. They, um, you know, just spend their money on basic necessities. Um, but then one day someone comes along and gives a direct deposit into their account. Say, I don't know, $1 million, $10 million. But that person who is living paycheck by paycheck has no idea it was direct deposited. That's why I say direct deposit, because sometimes it can go in there without you knowing, right? <laughs> um, so this person now has, say, $10 million in their bank account, but they have no idea. Isn't that how sometimes we live as Christians? Because we do not access what we have living in us. If you say that you are a Christian and you believe with your heart that Jesus Christ died for your sins, this work of the cross tells you the Holy Spirit lives in me. It is our choice whether or not to access that Holy Spirit. So every time we believe in that label, I'm hopeless, I'm not going to change. We are believing a lie. It's not true. 
you are not accessing the Holy Spirit and his ability to help us live a righteous life. The Bible says it's impossible to live a righteous life. It's so hard because sin, our flesh is so sinful. We live in sin. We can't help but sin. But once you believe in Jesus, you are taken out of that. And now the Holy Spirit lives in you and you have access to help. If we um, decide to be led by the Spirit, he will help you. But the problem is we don't ask for help. We try and try and try on our own and we fail and then we label ourselves, I'm a failure. I'm such a sinner, I'm not going to change, right? And so think to yourself, what would happen if we didn't believe in that lie anymore? How free could we be if we access the Holy Spirit living in us, helping us? How different would your life be? Which takes us to the third point. Paul is saying that ultimately, ultimately, the biggest surety that we have, that we are saved and can live a victorious Christian life, is that God sends his Holy Spirit to live in us so that we can cry out, Abba, Father. Paul is saying the ultimate of that surety is God is your father. Now think to yourself, how different would your life be if you had the perfect, all-powerful, love you no matter what, father? I don't know about you, but some of us really did have great dads. They, had, they, were, they provided for you. They tried to love you. They did the best they could. They gave you great examples. They hugged you when you needed it. Um, they didn't yell at you when you failed. Um, you had great dads. But others of us, you had really sucky dads. They didn't know how to parent. Maybe they didn't um, have great dads themselves, and so they just followed their example. And many of us maybe had maybe dads in between, you know, of those two extremes. But think to yourself, how would your life have been different if we had the perfect father? And the Bible is saying, we do. We do have the perfect father. When you believe in Jesus and the work on the cross, The spirit in us cries out, Abba, Father. God becomes your father. I remember when uh, my children were first born. um, uh, As most of you know, I have four children. And um, it's amazing how much you love them when they have not done one thing to deserve it. Right? Even when they're in your stomach cooking sometimes you're like I just love this baby so much and um, you know it's weird because once they're out you love them so much but they do so many things opposite of earning your love in fact they're really difficult and annoying they just cry all the time all they do is poop and pee everywhere Um, you got you lose sleep taking care of them and yet you love them right That is how God is with us. We don't have to do anything to earn it. 
In fact, if we understood the true label that God is my father, then we can even understand things like discipline. If I did not believe that God is a good father, anytime something went wrong, I would think to myself, oh my goodness, God hates me. Or he's punishing me for something I did wrong. But if I believe that God is a good father, perfect father, every time something went wrong or I was, you know, I didn't, God didn't answer my prayer, I would think to myself, God is disciplining me for my benefit. So, for example, when my son, my oldest son, he's 15 now, I remember distinctly the first time he lied to me. I was like, oh my gosh, my perfect little boy, he lied. And he was young, and so it was so blatantly obvious that it was something to the fact like, did you make this mess? And there was no one else around, just me and him. No, I didn't do it. I was like, what? (laughs) It's so obvious he did it, but he just lied to my face. And I remember thinking, wow, um, I got to discipline him now. (laughs) He's not as perfect as I thought. Oh, no. But I never once thought to myself, he sinned, now I must disown him. (laughs) He lied to me, you're not my son anymore. Did I ever think that once? No. Because even though I'm not perfect, I'm not the perfect mother, I love him. And as a natural parent, I discipline him to help him. Sometimes I even withhold things to help him. Sometimes I even take away things because it's going to hurt him. And that is the same way with God. He is the perfect father. And so he disciplines or he takes away, he withholds or he gives all for our benefit. Verse 15 and 16 says, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear but you receive the spirit of sonship and by him we cry abba father the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are god's children so think to yourself what labels have i put on myself Is it based on what Christ has done on the cross? Or is it based on something you've done or not done? The enemy is very subtle. And he helps us believe things that are not true. Because, oh, say maybe you made a mistake once. Oh, I guess I'm that person now. Say you shoplifted and you got caught. Oh, I'm that person with a record now. And you constantly live with that. Right? But God doesn't want you to do that. He says, I have sent you my spirit, and my spirit will help you cry out, Abba, Father. And it's interesting because Paul uses a very um, informal um, way to address God. He doesn't use the formal like Yahweh or, you know, Father, the very formal language. But he says, Abba, Father. It's like Daddy. 
We have a daddy God that is interested in us. And he wants us to call him Abba Father. In fact, the whole Bible is written to talk about God's pursuit of this relationship with us. I remember thinking in my own life when I was um, younger, um, my father, he actually passed away when I was 13. And so I grew up thinking, I'm that girl who's orphaned. I don't have a dad. And I thought to myself, that affected how I viewed myself, how I viewed many situations. In fact, like my mom, she was a very devoted Christian. And so um, when my father passed away, she, she had a hard time. And so she spent most of her time at church praying. And so in my mind, basically, I was like shaking my fist at God. God, you basically stole both my parents. One, because he passed away. The other, because all my mom does is go to pray and tr- go to church and pray. And so in my mind, I was thinking, oh, I am an orphan. That's how I labeled myself. And then, you know, as I was growing up more, um, I'm the middle child. I have two older sisters, a younger brother and younger sister. And I had the typical, you know, middle child syndrome. Oh, you know, I'm always overlooked. <laughs> Other people are always more important than me or things like that. And so I labeled myself a certain way even because of those circumstances. And so these labels were piling up about myself. And then one day I ended up going to um, a conf- uh we call it summer training program. It was a four-week-long Christian like camp. And um, it was actually, I'm from Virginia, but it was actually at Harvey Cedars here in New Jersey. Um, it was my, um, I think, second or third year of college. And we had to do this thing called Time Alone with God. It was like three, four hours of you're supposed to read the Bible and pray. And I remember the first time, basically after like 30 minutes, I just fell asleep for the rest of the time. And then I woke up and I was like, whoa, I had a good nap. (laughs) And then I went along my day. But we had to do that time alone with God like periodically throughout the four weeks. But finally on the third time, I um, did this. I said to myself, oh, I'm not going to lay in bed and fall asleep anymore. I'm going to really make an effort to stay awake. So I decided to walk to the beach, um, and it was beautiful. Harvey Cedars is really beautiful, really quiet. And so I ended up going to the beach, sitting there, doing my quiet time and praying. And God helped me read a verse from Psalm 27. And it said... Um, How vast are your thoughts towards me, O God? If I were to count them, they would outnumber the sands. And I remember thinking, this verse is talking about how much God thinks of me. And he says, if he were to count how much he thinks of me, it would outnumber the sands. And then I happen to be on the beach looking at sand. And if you've ever even gotten a handful of sand that's like thousands of grains of sand even in one handful but me I'm sitting on the beach with a beach full of sand and God is saying look Lisa that is how much I think of you and so I realized that this label that I had been thinking about myself this whole time 
was so wrong. I'm not overlooked. I'm not an orphan. And that changed me, understanding that freedom from that label. So for us, I want us to walk away from the labels that we put on ourselves and put on the true label that we are children of God and co-heirs with Christ. Lastly, to conclude, I want to go back to that Thomas Edison story in the beginning. How did he move from being labeled dyslexic, addled, too stupid to learn anything, to the greatest inventor in history? How did he move from that? You know, it's most likely he credits it credits it to his mother. His mother told him, you just learn differently, Thomas. <laughs> Those other kids learn this way, but you learn this way. It's okay. And he learned to learn. He trained himself to learn through asking. He was just so curious the biographies about him is he was just curious about everything. He would ask questions about how things worked. And she was patient enough to help him learn in that capacity. So she literally <laughs> ripped off that label for him and said, you're not too stupid to learn anything. You're not learning disabled, Thomas. You just learn differently. And so it trained him. It helped him to go beyond that label that other people had put on him. In the same way, we knew mercy, I hope and pray, that we would each have a true label, the right label. The Bible says, when we learn the truth, it will set us free. I pray this morning that we will be set free from those labels. Let's pray together.